0: Good morning, everyone. Wow, what a wonderful, wonderful Resurrection Sunday. Hallelujah. You know, in the traditional church, they have this practice, you know. On Resurrection Sunday, the minister will get up to the pulpit, and then he will shout, He is risen. And then the people are supposed to shout back, He is risen indeed. And that's to seal the point. So, we're going to practice being traditional today. Uh, I know it's not our usual practice. We are usually a very casual, you know, church. But I think it's good once in a while to be traditional. What do you think? He is risen. risen Practice a bit more. He is risen. risen Amen. And you know what? When you declare this, He is risen indeed. It's not just a tradition. It's a declaration. It's a declaration that Jesus is alive. That we actually serve a risen Savior. And because He's alive, there is hope. Because He's alive, there is joy. Because He's alive, there is peace. There is healing. There is everything that Jesus has done for us on the cross has become real to us today. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And may that become something we can take home today. He is alive and He is risen, amen. You know, today I wanna share something with you which I've entitled, Never Too Late. It's never too late when it comes to a Savior that is alive. And I wanna invite you to go with me to a passage in John chapter 19. And I want to read for you verses 38 to 42. So if you have your Bibles, would you go along with me? John chapter 19, verses 38 onwards. Wonderful. John chapter 19, verses 38 onwards. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. And with Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, and about 75 pounds. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. And this was in accordance to jewish, with jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And in some, some other Gospels, it tells us that that tomb actually belongs to Jesus, uh, Joseph of Arimathea. And because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Let's bow. We have a word of prayer. Father, I pray this morning, On this very special Sunday where we remember that Jesus rose again from the dead, I pray that you remind us again of how significant this moment is. That we serve today a saviour that is alive. And we don't just celebrate resurrection on this one Sunday a year, but we celebrate it every single day because our saviour is alive. We serve a living God. But today, may you bring our minds to bear once again on this significant event, so that we can walk out of this place filled with fresh hope, new love, and joy. Because truly, our Saviour is alive. So we commit this time of sharing now to you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen, amen. Uh, I'd like you to listen to this clever little poem that reads like this. Procrastination is my sin. It brings me nothing but sorrow. I know that I should stop it. In fact, I will tomorrow. (laughs) Do you get the point? That's the trouble with procrastination, isn't it? And this morning, I want us to engage the Resurrection Sunday story through the eyes of someone who also procrastinated when it came to his commitment to Christ. I want to let the spotlight fall on a rather obscure player in the Good Friday drama. And his name is Joseph of Arimathea. And he was given the task, actually, of burying the Son of God. He was the one, if you like, that was given the job of certifying that Jesus was truly dead. He was the one who fixed the signature, if you like, on the death certificate of the Son of God. The brief part that he played in this drama of the cross is often forgotten and seldom mentioned. But I think his story is actually a story of hope for every one of us. And I want to tell you why. I think it's actually a story of hope. But first, let me introduce to you uh, who Joseph of Arimathea is by telling you a, a, a few things about him. Number one is this. Here is a man, Joseph of Arimathea, who actually had an outstanding career. Now, I want to tell you about him so that you can identify with him and put yourself in his shoes. He was a man with an outstanding career. All of the Gospel writers actually agreed that he was a successful career man. The book of Matthew tells us that he was a rich man. He was a wealthy fellow. In fact, he was so wealthy, he could actually own a new tomb that is carved out of the stone. You know how much effort it takes, how much work it takes to actually carve a tomb out of of the stone? But this guy could afford it. So he was obviously a wealthy man. Uh, The Gospel of Luke mentioned that he was not only wealthy, he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin which is actually a council, a Jewish council, consisting of the top 70 rabbis in Jerusalem. That's who he was. Um, The Gospel of Mark added another thing. It tells us that he was a good and upright and righteous man, which is why he did not agree to the Jewish council's decision to actually condemn and to crucify Jesus. He did not agree with that, because he knew that that wasn't right. He was an upright, Righteous man, and on top of all of his marketplace role in society, he was a deeply religious, a deeply devout man. Mark chapter 15, verse 43, actually tells us that he was waiting for the kingdom of God, that's who he was. He was looking for the Messiah, looking for the coming Messiah who would actually deliver. Israel. So you put all that together, what do you get? You actually get a man who is an outstanding marketplace believer. Can I put it that way? Yeah? Wealthy, successful, in the top echelon of society, and yet devout, righteous man, waiting for God. So he was an outstanding marketplace believer. Now, here's the second thing you need to know about him. He also had a very obscure conversion. A very obscure conversion experience. With his religious orientation, Joseph was obviously naturally drawn to Jesus. But in in John chapter 19, verse 38, it tells us clearly that he was a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. So question, why was he a secret believer? Why Why was his conversion a secret? Now before we are too quick to judge Joseph, let's try and understand his situation. As one, as, as one of those top 70 rabbis in Jerusalem, you need to understand, he had a lot to lose. Where he is in society, he was a man of position, influence, power, prestige. So he had to decide how best to deal with his personal beliefs. Now you gotta understand that's where he is. Right, he belongs to this top Sanhedrin of top 70 rabbis in Jerusalem. But at the same time, he had this personal belief in this man called Jesus. How is he gonna deal with that? See, you you see where his conundrum is. And I'm sure that Joseph had to go through a huge tussle inside of his heart to decide what is he going to do now. He belongs to this group, which is great, but at the same time, he actually believed in this Jesus. Should he resign, give up his job and then join Jesus and his disciples? Or should he stay in his job and then openly declare his faith and as a result, incur the wrath of all these other 70 rabbis? What's he going to do? Is he going to keep his faith secret and then quietly work behind the scene and try and effect change from the inside and make a difference? You see, all these are the things he has to grapple with. What is the best thing to do? Now, I think of all that, and I think about many who are in key positions in society, like the politicians among us, Christian politicians, heads of industries, CEOs, and all that. They had to grapple with this all the time. How deeply do I push my religious belief in the, market, in the workplace? How far can I push my personal convictions before I cross a line and actually abuse my organisational power? How, how, how do I hold the tension between official duties and religious commitment? You know, what does standing on my personal values mean in the marketplace? Can I actually stand on my personal values without becoming intolerant towards others? How do we combat evil when the whole system is corrupt and injustice is part of the official policy? what would we have done if we were in the shoes of Joseph of Arimathea? There are just no easy answers to these questions. But whatever the reason, Joseph decided to remain silent. But I wanted you to understand how difficult it must have been for him. As he stood silently at the edge of the crowd, listening to the teachings of Jesus, he came to a point where he actually knew that he has accepted Jesus as his Saviour, as his Messiah. I think he knew he has come to a place where his faith is in Jesus. And it must have been terrible for him to then sit in the council to go and decide if they should condemn Jesus, the troublesome prophet from Nazareth. In fact, the tension was so great Luke chapter 23, verse 51, tell us that he did not consent to their decision. He actually disagreed with them. Now, are are you with me, people? I'm painting you that picture. Here is this man who's struggling. In Mark chapter 14, verse 64, the Bible actually tells us that the entire Sanhedrin, they all condemn him as worthy of death. And I'm thinking, here is Joseph sitting in that Sanhedrin. How does he feel? Perhaps, you know, Joseph prudently absent himself from that meeting that night. Or maybe he simply abstained from the vote, I do not know. But through it all, he kept his faith a secret until, until Good Friday. And when Good Friday came around, all of a sudden he realised that all of those decisions they were taking has led, to the murder of an innocent man on a cross. And at that moment, Joseph found his overdue courage. He had, an, he had an obscure conversion. He was an outstanding marketplace believer, but now he found overdue courage. He realized that, you know, all, all that he has done or failed to do actually could have contributed to Christ being on the cross. And I'm so glad that Joseph's story did not just end there in regret. When he saw that his secret discipleship had actually led to the cross, he found his overdue courage. And the Bible tells us that at that point, he decided to do something. He boldly went up to Pilate and actually asked for the body of Jesus. The Greek word used for the word boldly that we read earlier on literally means to dare to be brave enough to summon up courage. Now, you may ask, why would, why, why would that act require courage? We need to understand that under Jewish laws, it is required that the body of an executed man to, must be buried before nightfall. That's the Jewish understanding. This is according to Deuteronomy 21, verses 21 and 22. Listen to what it says here if a man guilty of a capital offence is put to death and his body is hung on a tree overnight, in other words, it's a crucifixion, you you must not leave his body on the tree overnight because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. So what they need to do is that under Jewish laws, you need to take the body as soon as possible before the Sabbath and bury it. But under Roman laws, the bodies of the crucified must be left to decay on the cross and become food for the birds and the beasts. See, the Roman laws, however, do allow one thing. Under Roman laws, you are supposed to leave the body there and let it be eaten by the vouchers. But they do allow one thing. The relatives of the deceased can actually go to the, to the, the, the government and actually pay a price so that you can take that body down and give it a decent barrier. Only relatives, people who are close to the deceased can do that and provided they pay a fee for it. Now, we all know that Joseph is well able to afford the price, but he was not a relative of Jesus. So what does that mean? If he comes and he claims the body and give it a decent barrier, what does that mean? It exposes him to be a disciple of Christ, someone who is close to him, someone who cares about him. And how many of you know that is going to reveal the fact that he is a secret believer? That's going to get him in trouble. Are you with me? But he found his overdue courage at that moment. And he knew he needed to express his discipleship before Christ. And he knew night was coming. By that time, John had taken Mary home. Peter have denied the Lord. The rest of the disciples, they all scattered. Someone has to do something. Jesus' body cannot be left on the cross to be eaten by vultures. So what did he do? Joseph decided that he's going to step forward and do it. And he took courage that day, overdue courage, can I put it that way, and he actually did it. And interestingly, the Bible tells us that he was accompanied. He didn't do it alone. He was accompanied by another man called what? Nicodemus. Who was Nicodemus? He was another secret disciple of Jesus. They both came to this point where they said, we cannot keep our discipleship secret anymore. We are either for him or we are against him. We cannot be half-hearted when it comes to our faith. And that was the point where both of them decided they're going to risk everything. And they went up to Pilate and asked him for the body. Nicodemus was another secret disciple who came to Jesus in the middle of the night to ask him about the faith. Why? Because he also didn't want to be found to be a disciple. Nicodemus, too, had found overdue courage and decided also to publicly declare his discipleship. So both of them took the body of Jesus down from the cross and began to prepare it for burial. Joseph brought the grave clothes, Nicodemus brought the spices. So what did they do? They wrapped up the body with spices and strips of linen and then they put it in Joseph's new tomb. They rolled a heavy stone over it and then with equally heavy hearts, they turned and they went home. That was all they could do. Their discipleship journey has begun but it was too late to bring any joy to the master who already died. It was too little, too late. The opportunity had. Passed and gone forever. And the Bible recorded this story, I think, I think just to let us know not to procrastinate before it becomes too little and too late. I think it's a challenge to all of us to express our discipleship while we can and not wait till it's too late. And I want to challenge you today on the Resurrection Sunday that I think Now is the time to use your influence, use your position, use your money, use your skills, use your gifts and talents to serve the kingdom of God. Don't wait, but let's do it. Now is the time to have courage to stand for what is right. You see, I think the road of life is scattered with many, many good intentions, but sometimes too little action. We have many burning desires, but too little actually get done. And Joseph today is challenging all of us on this Resurrection Sunday. If you want to serve, my friends, do it now. If you want to follow Jesus, do it now. If you really want to give, do it now. If you really want to go on missions, and do it now. If you really want to obey God, do it now. If you really want to make a decision for Jesus, do it today. And I'm so glad, my friends, Joseph had an outstanding career, yes. Had an obscure conversion, see. And he actually found overdue courage only when after the master had died. But I'm so glad to let you know that this was not the end of the story. The story didn't end here. It ended this way. He also had an amazing comeback, listen to me. He had an amazing comeback because when the gravestone was rolled into his place covering the tomb, it seems like all is over. The moment the the gravestone goes into the the tomb and covers it, it seems like everything is final. But I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that sense of finality is deceptive because no gravestone can hold back the power of God no gravestone can hold him the book of acts declared in Acts chapter 2 verse 24 but god raised him from the dead hallelujah he is risen yeah god raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible, I like that word, for it is impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Little did Joseph know, as he turned and walked away with a heart as heavy as a gravestone, that within the next 36 hours, all of his work would have been unnecessary. The linen grave clothes would be neatly folded inside the tomb. Right, The stone would be rolled away the spices would be useless. The tomb, the stone, the grave cloth, the spices would mean very little. But the little that Joseph had done is going to mean so much. Amen. It seems at first to be too little, too late. But because Jesus is alive, because Jesus has risen, he knew who cared for him in those final, bleak hours of darkness. And Joseph's discipleship expressed even at the last moment was not wasted. His obedience carried out at the last hour did count. It was an amazing comeback. And brothers and sisters, I have good news for you. Like Joseph, you and I may feel that we have wasted many long years, we wasted resources and energy, but I want you to know that in this life, it is never too late. As long as you're still alive today, it is never too late. You know why? Because Jesus has risen. And today, we serve a living Saviour. The risen one stands in our midst today. He stands ready to receive whoever comes to him. So whether it is the thief on the cross, or it is Joseph, the rich man who waited too long to declare his discipleship, or you could be a Nicodemus that remains a secret disciple. Now you may say to yourself, But but it's not fair. You know, Joseph did not stand up for Jesus at this point of need. And then now, Jesus just received him? You know, it's not fair. He kept silent when the council was voting. Why should Jesus receive him? He did not deserve this. It's not fair. Now let me ask you, is it fair? Is it fair that everything that they have done should now be forgotten? I, I think, I agree, it's not fair. The first thing you need to know about the gospel is this, it's not fair. It's not fair at all. Because if it is based on fairness, then every single one of us here deserves to go to hell. Isn't that right? That would be fair. But the reason why it's gospel, why it's good news is because it's not fair. We all have a part to play in putting Christ on the cross. The crowds, they asked for it. The Pharisees condemned him. Joseph kept silent. Nicodemus was a secret disciple. Peter denied him. The rest of the disciples all ran away. You and I, we are also involved in that drama. You and I sin against him. It is our sin, your sin and mine, that actually nailed Jesus to the cross. It's true. We all deserve punishment more than salvation. But if it is based on fairness, we all would end up in hell. But because it's not based on fairness, it is based on grace. Then it becomes what? Unmerited favour. It is undeserved. It is unmerited. It is unearned. It is no longer based on our own merits, but it's on the merits of Christ because of what Jesus has done. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is absolutely true, for it is by grace. It is by grace that you and I have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so no man can boast. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news. It's not fair. Jesus shouldn't have to die on the cross. It's not fair. And just because He rose again, all of us can be forgiven. That's not fair. I know it's not fair. It is by grace that you have been saved. through faith. And that's why we worship this risen Savior. He is so good. Somebody ought to say amen. He is so good. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. But yet, we have a Savior who forgives us, saves us, loves us, and waiting to take us to heaven. And that is actually so ridiculous, you know, you think about it. The gospel is so ridiculous. Let me paint a picture for you so that you can catch the immensity of this idea, right? Now imagine, if you can, you see a, a line of black ends in your kitchen floor, okay? You see this what line of uh, black ends, little ends on the kitchen floor. You know, we all hate that when we see it in our home, right? But you, imagine you see this, these black ants crawling along your kitchen floor, they are so small that you cannot even really see all the moving parts, you know, but you can see them, little black line moving across the floor. Can you imagine if I'm in your home and we are both looking at this line of black ants and then I turn to you and I said, you know what, I love these ants. (laughs) Immediately you were thought, you lost your mind. You know, then I said, but in fact, I love these ants so much, I think I'm going to, give my son Joe in exchange for these ends. Now you confirm I'm really mad. It doesn't make sense. My point is that the the, the, the gap between God and man is even greater than the gap between me and the ends. Why? Because God created man. I didn't create the ends. God created man and yet he says, I love them so much, I'm going to give my son in exchange for them. Can you see the incredible implication of this famous verse now in, John, in John's Gospel, John 3:16, which we all know? For God so loved this world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And if I can add to the immensity of this idea, can you imagine if I were to tell you that this ends even though they look so innocent, they're actually very vicious. In the night, they will crawl into sleeping people and then mutilate them, eat their eyes and <laughs> eat their tongue and all that. Now what would you think? Now you would think, my goodness, we need to send in the exterminator and destroy them, not to go and save them. And exactly, this is exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. We are like those, we are people who mutilate other people. With the sinful behaviour inside of us, we actually destroy the world that He created. But God so loved this world that He actually gave His Son in exchange to save these worthless people. And that's what He has done for me. That's what He has done for you. Romans 5.8 is true God demonstrated His own love for us in this that while we were still sinners Christ died for us while we were still shaking our feet in His face He chose to die for us He didn't die for people who loved Him He actually died for people who were rebelling against Him and that's what makes Chris Easter so special for me and I want to encourage all of us fall in love with Jesus all over again. That we would come to Him this Easter. And I remind you it's never too little, it's never too late. It's because He is alive today. And He is ready to invade your life. He stands ready to forgive. He stands waiting to receive you into His kingdom. If only we are willing to repent. If only we are willing to turn away from our sins and then surrender to Jesus as our Saviour, Restorer, Redeemer, Reconciler. And Lord, who you have talked about for the last five weeks, we come to Him as that. He's the one who restores. He's the one who reconciles. He's the one who redeems us. And we don't procrastinate anymore, but we come to Jesus today. It's never too late. You could be that little end. You think you're nothing, but Jesus died for you and He wants you to come home. Amen. He wants to. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that this word spoken in simplicity as we view this to the eyes of Joseph of Arimathea, someone who was slow in expressing this discipleship but yet because you have risen He had an amazing comeback. And Lord, we want to come back to you. Come, draw your people to yourself this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. Would you stand with me to your feet this morning?